welcome to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. My name is Aidan Muir and I'm here with my co-host Leah Heidel. And today we're going to be doing episode 140 on creatine myths and misconceptions. And there's two things that kind of inspired me to want to do this topic specifically. One was that a year or two ago, I don't know, I read a study that was titled, I'm just scrolling down, titled Common Questions and Misconceptions about Creatine Supplementation. What does the scientific evidence really show by the International Society of Sports Nutrition? And I've been reading about creatine by like over a decade at this point when I read that study and I still learned something new. So I'm like, that's cool. Maybe I should share some stuff. So that's partly inspired this. The other thing is we're trying to grow this podcast and we normally just choose topics based on what we think would be beneficial for people. We don't ever look at our analytics and stuff like that that much, but the most listened to podcast that we've ever done was episode 14 on creatine. That's all we titled it. We just called yeah, it creatine. Yeah, so wild. And it's the most listened to podcast. So it's like, I don't know, 100 and however many episodes later. Let's let's do that again. So if you haven't listened to that, obviously I encourage listening to that, but as a bit of a brief summary of the benefits of creatine supplementation, the first thing is that it increases ATP regeneration, ATP is a form of energy that is typically useful for the first 10 seconds of activity. If you, if you lift weights, for example, this could help you get a few more reps out here and there. And over time, creatine has been shown to increase both strength and muscle growth. So that's why we'll frequently recommend it to a lot of people. Yeah. So first thing we're going to touch on in terms of, I guess, misconceptions around creatine is really around this creatine loading aspect uh when when going online like when people are talking about creatine we see so much conversation happening about creatine loading people like either don't do it waste of time you're just wasting your creatine like don't even worry about it and then on the other side we have people that are like you need to load creatine like this is a very important part of taking creatine so we're kind of just gonna break that down and um see what the outcome of that is so let's start with what creatine loading is So loading creatine is essentially taking a higher dosage upon starting creatine monohydrate uh, to basically build up your saturation of creatine faster than if you were just taking kind of the standard daily dose. The general recommendation for loading is 20 grams of creatine per day. Most people are going to have to split this up over around four doses across the day just to avoid any kind of gastrointestinal issues. And then they'll do that for five to seven days. Following that, they will then go to your regular three to five gram per day dosage and continue on with that dosage after the loading phase. If you do not load creatine when you initially start taking it, it takes around 30 days for creatine saturation to occur. And like I said, in comparison to the loading, five to seven days. So the biggest difference is reaching that kind of maximal Um, benefit of creatine faster when you load it initially as opposed to just taking your daily dose but either way you will reach creatine saturation over a period of time whether you load or you don't load so basically loading is just quicker way to reach the point of full effect of creatine monohydrate and noting that this is just when you start creatine I definitely see a lot of people taking creatine, they're five grams per day, and then they learn about loading like months later, and then they do their loading phase. Okay, at that point, it probably is a waste of time because you're already, if you've been consistent, you're already at the point of creatine saturation. It's realistically when you are just starting 
the process of taking creatine. And if you, if you don't ever come off of it, there's really no need to load once you've started taking it for a while. So the breakdown on loading in general is, yes, when you first start taking it, you do get the full effect of creatine faster. It's not something that you have to do. My con is kind of like, it's kind of annoying yeah. to take something four times a day. I'd probably just wait the extra few weeks for the full effect. But it depends on how much, I guess, you want that effect and how fast. Yeah, I've mixed views. When I was like early as a dietitian, I used to just like not worry about telling people load. It'd be like five grams per day. Don't need to do it. And then like I met like a pretty elite athlete who's just like, can I just load? Like I'll get there quicker. Like I actually care about those few yes, days. I'm yes. like, sure. <laughs> and now I just like put it as an, like, like an optional thing. And even when I post about it on Instagram and I just like laid out being like optional loading phase of whatever, every now and then I do get a comment that's like, loading is a myth, you don't need to do it. I'm like, well, you don't, but like you just get there quicker, like it's a choice. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a benefit to doing it if you care about the speed in which you get to that saturation. Yeah. The next one we're going to talk about as a bit of a myth in a way is hair loss. So this is a complicated one. The logic largely stems from the fact that or the logic that people would go with is that creatine increases DHT production and DHT is linked with hair loss. That makes sense, but let's dig a little bit deeper in this. So the first part is this almost exclusively stems from a single study in 2009. We've added that in the show notes if anybody wants to check it, but it was a three-week study on rugby players who were taking 25 grams of creatine per day for seven days. That's a loading phase. The reason why it's bigger than the standard 20 grams is because they're big guys. Like yeah. it scales based on size. And then they followed that up with a maintenance dose for the next 14 days for the rest of the three weeks. In that study, levels of DHT increased by 56% after seven days of that loading phase. And then they remained 40% above the baseline after 14 days of maintenance. If that was the only thing you knew, you'd kind of be a little bit concerned, but there's a few things that we want to unpack. First one. There are no studies on creatine and hair loss, not a single one. <laughs> if you are out there saying creatine causes hair loss, that is a very, very, very bold claim. It's a big jump. <laughs> yeah. And like, obviously people can like anecdotally be like, oh, I started taking creatine, my hair started thinning. But like, there's just so many variables going on with that. Like, was your hair going to be thinning regardless? Maybe you're just a man in their thirties with a genetic yeah. history. Like. <laughs> yeah. Like, like we, like it makes a lot more sense to have, have some data on this rather than just certain anecdotal claims. Um, I get it if you're kind of concerned, but like, let, let's dig deeper beyond that. So there's no direct studies on hair loss. Part two, um, that study that I just talked about has not been replicated. We don't even know if creatine increases DHT levels beyond what this study found. Firstly, there's not really a mechanism behind that. All creatine is doing is increasing ATP regeneration. What does that have to do with DHT levels? Um, it does do some stuff with water retention and stuff like that potentially, which we'll talk about later. But it's not really a link with DHT levels. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there's not other research directly looking at that. What there is research looking at is creatine and testosterone. And testosterone and DHT have quite a bit of a link. There's at least 12 studies that I'm aware of that have looked at creatine and testosterone. And as you can imagine, there's no increase in testosterone from creatine. So unlikely to really raise DHT beyond that one study we've seen. In that study, DHT levels remained within normal levels within that study. It's not like they took people with normal DHT and it was a massive increase. It was always within the healthy range in that study. DHT levels typically bounce around within the healthy range as well. Sometimes they go down, sometimes they go up. Um, unless you read a lot of research, it may or may not be like difficult to really get what I'm getting out of that. But like, I'm going to use a different example. There are certain supplements that are 
proposed to increase testosterone. And uh, there's one I'm, I'm blanking on it right now, but it has like four studies looking at it increasing testosterone. It's a very common su- supplement in test boosters. And like two of the studies actually found like a decrease in testosterone. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> Don't quote me on this because I'm doing it off the top of my head, but there is multiple studies that found a decrease in testosterone and multiple that found an increase in testosterone. Every supplement company, when they're referencing their studies, guess which ones they're referencing. <laughs> what they're picking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's because testosterone also bounces around in a healthy range as well for most people as well. So like with random chance of small sample sizes, you are going to see a change. Once again, that's just one for the DHT. That's just a 2009 study on rugby players, not a massive sample size. It would be a bold take to assume this increases DHT all the time. And then another thing that skews things, heavy lifting increases DHT levels on average. Did their training change in this thing? Did any other variable change? There are a lot of variables that go into this. But I can I can understand if you are like super cautious about this. The main thing why I'm quote unquote busting the myth is just to be like, well, there's no evidence that it actually does increase hair loss. But something that takes it to another level for me personally, and I would understand if people disagree with me on this, is there was only one study done in 2009 It wasn't directly looking at hair loss, and there's been no study since. So many people are concerned about this concern. I, I know so many people who don't take creatine just because they're like really clinging on to it. They're like, I don't want to lose my hair. I get that. <laughs> like, really? I understand that. You have clients that are like, no, nah, I'm worried about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, it's, right. it's actually really common, yeah. Um, so like, I do get that. But the thing that makes me super like fine with this and being like, I just don't think it's an issue is that nobody studied it since. Research mm. is hard to do and that makes it less appealing to do. But something that I often find with a lot of researchers because it's their job is they want to do research that's impactful. That's one of the things. And I think a lot of people look at this topic, they hear the complaint and they're like, oh, I might look into this. And then they start looking into studying it and they're like, nah, I just don't think there's a link between creatine and hairless. I'm not going to spend however long looking at this. That's my actual true belief. I do understand if people disagree with that. Mm-hmm. But I would 100% change my mind if we do see research coming out showing that it links, it's linked with hairless. We just have nothing on that at this stage. And this has been looked into like 2009 was when this process really started. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next one we'll talk about is pretty popular and that is the, I guess, myth or misconceptions around water retention. This is a slightly harder one to unpack than the previous two things like loading and hair loss. I think we can come to some like pretty decent conclusions around this. This The, the water retention stuff has, I guess, nuance to it in that it's pretty well accepted that creatine does increase water weight. But there's some stuff in that to unpack here that a lot of people aren't aware of. So firstly, most people are concerned that the water, ma- water weight that they put on when taking creatine will make them look puffy or bloated. Or the big thing I heard growing up was like, it's going to give you a moon face because you're just <laughs> you're like, oh, bro, you started taking creatine, like you've got the puffiness. But bro was just in a bulking phase and gaining weight. <laughs> um, so I think that's like, that's a huge misconception. Um when realistically, when we look at the water weight from creatine, at least 50% of that does seem to be intracellular. So like inside the muscles. So if anything, this extra water weight should probably make you look a little bit more jacked than it does bloated and puffy. Yeah. And like big emphasis on at least 50%. I always say at least 50% because that's the lowest that I've ever seen in the research. There are other very smart evidence-based people who say it's almost exclusively intracellular. Yes. It's somewhere between those two things. The lowest I've seen is 50%. It's, I've seen some like 80% intracellular. I like to put 50% as like the absolute base, but yeah. 
It's not a big take to say most of it is inside your muscles. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the wording I use. I say most of it's inside your muscles. You're going to look a little bit more jacked, hopefully, um, especially considering how much people tend to increase their weight by. If we're thinking like, let's say a kilo of water weight, and then half of that's in your muscle. And even like at the lower amount, half that, or in the higher amount, half of that's elsewhere. Um, it shouldn't make you look bigger. It shouldn't make you look bloated or you're fluffier. Um, so I think that is a huge misconception around creatine in general, but obviously it comes from a grain of truth in that we know that there is some water retention that does come with creatine, especially like around that loading phase if you're doing that. Um, so yeah, the complex thing is the water retention from creatine, it does seem to be transient. So if we look at the research, it seems like after a, a period at the maintenance dose, that you kind of come back to this homeostasis where you actually don't retain that water for that kind of the whole time you're taking creatine. Um, I still think there is probably some nuance around this. Maybe you retain a little bit of it. Maybe it's not all gone, but for the most part, it does seem to be transient. This is the thing that I learned in that thing, like that paper that I mentioned earlier, the creatine myths and misconceptions type thing. Because it's like, I've been reading about creatine for like 10 years or whatever. Never really questioned it. I was just like, oh yeah, like yeah. creatine increases water weight. And I just imagine in my head, say it increases by a kilo, that becomes your new baseline while you're taking creatine. When you stop after about 30 days, it goes back to the baseline um, slowly over time. Whereas like they basically put it out exactly how you had just said it. As in, we can't even really measure the difference between creatine and placebo at the 30 day and beyond type yeah. of mark. Yeah. And I'm like, that's super interesting. And I, I don't say it's non-existent or like both of us would say we're saying like either it's non-existent or it's much smaller. Yeah, that's that what I'm probably more comfortable in saying. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I do still find studies where it's like we can still measure it. It just seems like on average it's either non-existent or much smaller. Totally, yeah. So in terms of uh, having this water retention, I don't think it's a big deal even though there is some truth to it yeah. being it, it existing basically. And another big thing is outside of weight class sports – most people shouldn't care about this because it's like intracellular, as we're saying. It's almost like being better hydrated in a way. It's like a good thing. Um, but yeah, with weight class sports, I just wouldn't start a loading phase right before yes. cutting for a comp. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why this seems like we're getting deep into theory and this doesn't really matter, one of the reasons why I think this matters is because if I was working with a combat sports athlete who's doing a weight cut, I no longer take creatine out. Whereas previously, Same. I thought there could be like a kilo difference or whatever if you took it out 30 days out from a fight. We know that creatine might help with concussions, management, prevention, etc. In that case, I'm like, this is a huge win. It means we don't need to worry about this. We can just keep creatine in as long as we're not loading right before we have to weigh in. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously we have so many benefits of creatine from a performance and post-concussion syndrome yeah. perspective that like that was a game changer for me. I'm like, I don't need to take this out for yeah. these athletes. Cool. Cool. Now let's talk through kidney damage. So this is another complex one, unfortunately, but um, in muscle, both creatine and phosphocreatine are broken down into creatinine, which is sent to the blood and excreted in urine. Since kidneys filter creatinine, this is often a marker of kidney function. But there are two things, amongst many other things, that can skew this marker a fair bit. One is having a high creatine intake through your diet, either by supplementation or through dietary means, or having a lot of muscle mass as well. Or another thing to add in today is if you train really hard, that will also increase creatinine as well. The direct logic which is often used is that high levels of creatinine in the blood typically means kidney function is not functioning as well. Estimated glomerular filtration rate, which is often the one thing people will look at 
or kidney function just on a blood test. It's the simplest thing to look at. It's kind of figured out partly based on creatinine levels and it will basically like lower EGFR, which can be a bit of a worry. When we're looking at things like chronic kidney disease, that's partly how we define chronic kidney disease in many cases. Um, Like if it drops below 60, we start getting concerned. That's like stage three chronic kidney disease, for example. That's like the direct logic people use. Indirect logic people use is it increases strain on the kidneys. That's one that I'm less, um, I don't want to say less understanding of because I do get get the concern, but I'm like, that's just not enough. That's just not enough because if I go for a run, that's strain on my heart. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a bad thing. And what about other vitamins and supplements that we're not concerned about that are also filtered through the kidneys, yeah. you know? Yeah, sometimes people are concerned about sodium, like because they're like, oh, the yeah. kidney's filtered out or whatever. But no one's like, nah, I don't want to have too much potassium through like, exactly. eating like, <laughs> fruit and vegetables. Like, <laughs> I don't know. And like that, I, I'm brushing it off, but it's like late stage chronic kidney disease. We actually do start tracking these kind Obviously of things. Obviously, we care more. Yeah. yeah. So it's like strain on the kidneys do matter when the kidneys are declining in function. But if you've got relatively healthy kidneys at the baseline, this kind of doesn't matter. But big thing, important thing, we have a wealth of research, including randomized control trials, showing that creatine supplementation in normal dosage does not negatively impact kidney function. You can almost, in a way, view this increasing creatinine levels as a bit of a red herring in a way, in that it can increase creatinine levels. You might be worried about that. Same thing as just if you did have a hard session of lifting not long before you, you got a blood test, that would skew this as well. But you could then be concerned about your kidney function. But one of the issues is either it's elevated because of lifting or creatine or whatever, and you're completely healthy and there's no issues, or maybe you do have something wrong. (laughs) Yes. And the only way to find out for sure is to stop creatine for, say, 30 days before your next blood test and also have a deload before getting that blood test as well to be sure. That's that's only if you're concerned about something. Um, Another thing to touch on is there's technically another way to measure EGFR that's not actually using this. So that's another thing that a lot of lifters do as well. Um, I believe it's cysteine C or something like that. Mm. But there's other ways to test as well. The next point we'll touch on is dehydration. And does creatine create a an issue with, with dehydration? So the logic behind this is based on creatine increasing water retention and sending more water to the muscles. Honestly, like when I hear people talk about this, it doesn't even make logistical sense to me. Um, but I, I can kind of see where people are coming from. Like if we're diverting water to to a different area, um, really the short version is that creatine does not contribute to dehydration. Like that's really as like as easy as we can put it. Um, even logistically, it you know, doesn't really check out as much as um, we would like for something to actually like really have a solid look in there. But even from what we know, um, we know that. It's, it's, not, it's a non-issue, really. So the long version is really just unpacking the logic around this. Firstly, obviously everybody should be well hydrated. Whether you're taking creatine or not, in general, let's just drink enough water, let's be hydrated. But secondly, let's say somebody has gained one kilo of water weight in a creatine loading phase over a five-day period. That does sound like a lot of water, but it is split over five days. Like if we think about it as just like 200 mils per day over five days, um, it's it's really not that much per day. So even in like the worst case scenario, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. And then when you factor in changes in excretion with like reduced urination uh, due to a greater retention of this water occurring, then it becomes even less of an issue. 
So I think just to tie that up with a nice little neat bow is that creatine does not contribute to dehydration. Yeah. I don't know what it is about that that annoys me, but like I posted on creatine on TikTok the other day and somebody asked, should I take creatine with their history, et cetera? And I was like, yeah, it makes sense. And then somebody commented, make sure you drink heaps of water with it. And I was like, I'm not going to respond to this on TikTok, but like yeah. it just annoys me a little bit. Like, cause it's just kind of like, yeah. like for, as you said, like everyone should be well hydrated yeah, all the time anyway. Is it really more important with creatine? When you do the maths on it, like it's not really that much difference as you kind of said. And it's not like it's dangerous. It's not any more dangerous to be dehydrated on creatine. Than it is otherwise. Than otherwise, yeah. Like yeah. I think people are worried about the kidney stuff, but like it, it's not more dangerous, yeah. I just think everybody should be well hydrated at all times anyway. I just though. find it funny how things always have a flip side in that you have the camp of people that are like, water retention, it causes water retention. And then you have the other people like, be, be careful of dehydration. Yeah. I'm like, they're very opposing things to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> so the, I reckon the one we'll wrap up on as the last one is we'll talk about other forms of creatine. It's super common to see marketing in a way about creatine, a different, a new form of creatine being better than creatine monohydrate. So creatine monohydrate is the most studied form. It has been studied very extensively since the 1990s. There is one group that I believe has been taking it for research purposes since 1990 in, I think, a dosage of 20 grams per day, and they haven't had side effects. So it's like it's one of the most studied supplements of all time in terms of safety. No other form has been found to be superior. Like a lot of other forms will have claims, like some of them will even say stuff like more effective than creatine monohydrate without the water weight or without the whatever. It's like that's part of how creatine works. Um, <laughs> even even like this is off topic, but like there might, there might even be benefits of creatine water weight as a good thing in terms of the explanation for creatine leading to improved muscle growth over time that is like the very simple base level one that, largely probably explains it is um it improves performance you get a few more reps out here and there that translates to more muscle growth and more strength gain over time makes sense right but there's other supplements that also help with that that we don't think of as muscle building supplements and the research doesn't support them as that caffeine makes people one to three percent stronger mm-hmm. i don't hear many people being like oh no that's going to carry over to improve performance like apart from just like hyping you up or whatever to get more lifting done um other stuff, citrulline malate, beta alanine, maybe beetroot juice as well. All of these things, like we haven't seen research suggesting that they improve body composition or anything like that, but they do improve performance in the gym. So if we take a second and we're like, well, maybe the performance improvement isn't the biggest driver or the only driver or whatever of muscle growth, something else must be. And one of the pieces or one of the arguments some people say is that this hydration of the muscles sends a cell signaling kind of response to build more muscle because it's almost like it's more stretched or whatever. I wouldn't think about that too much, but it's like it's another potential advantage <laughs> of the water weight. Yeah. But anyway, so other, other forms of creatine, no other form has been found to be superior. One thing that is not an overly uncommon concern amongst people is that creatine can sometimes cause gut upset in certain people. It's a very common thing. I would say one in every four clients or something like that that I see will mention something about that. The research isn't on the same page as that kind of outcome. When we're looking at a three to five gram dosage, research can't that I've seen has not found any difference between gut upset between three to five grams of creatine and placebo. Yeah. That means people consuming placebo are still reporting this, but the frequency is still quite low for both of them. 
at a 20 to 25 gram dosage, there is a bit of a gap and you actually do see more people reporting issues from creatine. So it's like, okay, creatine does have this potential, but there's a big difference between 20 and 25 grams and three to five grams. One exception with the other forms of creatine that I'm far more open to is creatine hydrochloride, so HCl, could potentially solve this. Not because it's doing anything magical, just because the dosage required is lower. The maintenance dosage is about 1.5 grams, is enough to maintain optimal stores in most people. And at 1.5 grams, the dosage is so low that most people are not going to experience symptoms. So that's another thing. It's like, if you do get symptoms from creatine monohydrate, it could be worth trying creatine HCl. So a little bit of a summary of all of that realistically boils down to creatine is safe. It has really minimal downsides and as we've talked about in previous episodes it just has so many benefits for active people people who lift weights um realistically i also think it has a lot of uh benefits in like elderly populations and and uh, combat sports so definitely heaps of benefits from creatine safe minimal downsides so why not take it awesome well this has been episode 140 we always like plug giving reviews on this podcast and I massively appreciate those. Fun fact, it's been a little while since the review, so if anyone wants to leave one, we would love that too. But as a different call to action today, if anybody has enjoyed listening to this, if you could please share it on your story on Instagram or anything like that, we would massively appreciate that. Too.